welcome back to Mark's Madness. Oh, guys, I don't know if you're aware. Uh, take a look at it, but we're doing it again. We're doing it again. It is happening again, uh, despite protests, student-led and otherwise. Um, they, they tried to shut us down. They couldn't. Um, there no. were laser pointers as we tried to read. There were so... Oh, my God. Yes, that's, that, that, is, that is really the podcaster um, curse right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are we doing this week? Well, uh, this is the first of what mm-hmm. is going to be an undetermined amount of episodes <laughs> of, of, of lead up to... Come on, people! You it's know it's a surprise. You know what we're doing. We, you know what this is. This um, is the mystery dum dum flavor. This of Mark's exactly, Madness. and I'm the dum dum. But uh, but what we've done is we're we're going to we're we're going to be getting our context ready to yes. read a very big, very important uh, book, uh, which is Black Reconstruction in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so. There's some information we need to have before we can do that. One, we need to know who our author is. We always do that. Uh, yes. In this case, it is W.E.B. Du Bois. Yes. Um, du Bois. Du Bois. Not Du Bois, not Du Bois. Du Bois. Nathan is saying that like he's informing you. He's no, I'm, I'm doing it to himself. myself. It is absolutely <laughs> self-disciplined to get myself in the habit of it. I, I am such a fucking... Everything I've read up in my life has been so francophile, bullshitty that I uh, I desperately need to break myself of that. Trend. I love when we randomly get to call back to like your philosophy degree. And oh like, yeah, it's so much fun for everybody. Um, no, so so we're gonna we need we need to know that. So, but the problem was gonna be is that this was and it's hilarious that I'm talking about things being too long when this is probably gonna be weeks. <laughs> but in the sake of keeping this anywhere near consistently short yes um we're gonna do something a little bit different where we're gonna do instead of doing the entire life of dr du bois we are gonna take him we're gonna do his entire biography up to the point he wrote black reconstruction in america because that'll give us the context to understand what his life had been and the experiences he had had mm-hmm. and the things that would inform him writing that book. Which but, seems like kind of the point. But. Which is exactly. But yeah. I also want his life, in my opinion, and I think in everyone's opinion, got significantly more revolutionary after the writing of this book. He, he, became, a re- he became far more revolutionary later in his life. So we don't want to lose that. So we kind of sat around and put our heads together and went, well, what's a good place that we, oh, hang on a second. We know the Proles guy. We know the Proles guy. Um, So we reached out to Proles and Proles was kind enough to uh, uh, agree that we we want to do an episode on W.E. Du Bois. And so the way we're going to do this is we will do the first half of his life up until he wrote Black Reconstruction, which is kind of a nice halfway point. Yeah. And then the second half of his life, which is, again, a more revolutionary, far more in the the Proles and, and us you know oeuvre we will do that on pearls of the round table and we were going to record that episode on the ides of march uh march mm-hmm. 15th and uh i mean one of me or david will not leave the pod cave alive and that will be a uh, uh we'll figure out which one stabs the other but uh yeah no one knows podcasting just, hunger games it's very much so very much so but that's so that's that's gonna be fun we're gonna we're gonna do that i think that's a fun a good way to make sure that the, that this man's life is fully appreciated for what it is which is very important and very revolutionary and very under under examined i think in in modern america um but also try and get us to the book as close as as quick as possible because on the heels of of our biography of dr du bois which we were doing this week we're then going to re kind of get a little bit of a a a, a 
palate cleanser, an appetizer mm-hmm. of what what is his writing like? What is his style? And we're going to do that. Um, I'll allude to that a little bit later in the show. But next week, you'll be hearing a, uh, a piece. We're going to analyze a piece kind of mm-hmm. in the same vein as when we did the Gotha program um, or the Paris Commune. Uh, um, a shorter piece by the author that we can kind of encapsulate into one episode. Yeah. And then after that, we're going to do an entire history of Reconstruction in America. <laughs> and uh, that, I thought, foolishly, like kind of almost exactly like when we did imperialism, and I was like, I'll just do World War One real quick. Um, I, I bit off a little bit more than I could chew there, and then my OCD kicks in, and I have to uh, go very far down that hole, so... It's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a one. It's a bit of a thing. None of you saw Nathan's face and I just it immediately reminded me of when I asked my kids to clean their room. <laughs> it's it's something. Um but again, it, it is the cut we have to understand Black Reconstruction America is directly a response to the prevailing literature, ideas, and historiography of what Reconstruction had been. And if we don't understand that, we're not going to understand where this book is placed and why it's important and why it was necessary. Because it completely rewrites the historiography of how we talk about Reconstruction in America. Yes. So, that's the plan. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, let's start this before uh, we get too far off the rails. Yes. Um, There are no corrections this week. We have managed to to elude that we were... Dodged that Yeah, with the Matrix dodged that one, so (laughs) to speak. And... uh, I'm sure we've had plenty of corrections coming for our, our fun episode that we just did on the color horse, but you haven't you haven't had a chance to get to us yet. So yeah. um, that being said, uh, first up, yep, yep, it's Du Bois, yes. W E B Du Bois, uh, William Edward Burkhart Du Bois was born February 23rd, 1868, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. He was born to Alfred and Mary Sylvania Burkhart. Du Bois. Uh, Alfred left Mary in 1870, two years after their son William was born. So after W, after little, he was known as Willie as a kid. So I will refer to him until he becomes an adult or as, as Willie. I, I won't. I'll probably still refer to him as Du Bois. <laughs> but uh, to, after their, after Du Bois was born, uh, Mary Du Bois uh, moved her son back to their parents' house in Grand Barrington or Great Barrington, and they lived there until he was five. Where is Great Barrington? Great Barrington is in Massachusetts. Oh, okay. So good, good up up northeast. Northeast, and we're going to get into that a little bit as we go okay. here. So. Um, kind of similar to uh, uh, Haywood, uh, yeah. Doc, uh, Harry Haywood in a certain yeah, way. out in Kansas, kind of. Uh-huh. Yeah. They lived there until he was five. She worked to support the family. She received some assistance from her brothers and neighbors. Uh, she suffered a stroke in the early 1880s. She died in 1885. So well into, well into his life. I mean, That's he was good. born in 1868. She died in 1885. But just okay. tie that tie that thread off. There yeah. we go. Yeah. Uh, Great Barrington was a majority European American community, and they generally treated uh, Du Bois well. So, again, yeah. similar to the Haywood thing. Yeah. You know, he was, this is Very a northern familiar, town. Yeah. This is a northern town. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have the same, you, you don't have that same prejudice that you would normally see in the South. Um, but Right, right, right. I mean, they're, they're, and, and we'll probably bring it up with him, but, they, you know, there's some so racism there, but it's not Jim Crow laws. Exactly. Yeah. Um, also, because Jim Crow didn't exist yet, because we haven't even had the Civil War. Oh, yeah. No, we had. It's, I mean, no, 18, we had the Civil War. Yeah. 1868, eh, it's, it's still coming on. Yeah. Um, he attended the local integrated public school and played okay. with white schoolmates. As an adult, he wrote about racism, which he felt as a fatherless child and the experience of being a minority in the town. Uh, but teachers recognized his ability and encouraged his intellectual pursuits and his rewarding experience with academic studies led him to believe that he could use knowledge to empower African-Americans. So this is a trend that you're going to see with Du Bois. He, okay. he had a great education experience and that 
convinced him that this was a path, a viable path uh, for for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Um, which agree or disagree is, is a thing. Yeah. I mean, well, nonetheless, I mean, education is important either way. Agree or disagree. Exactly. I mean, whether it's political education, scholastic education. When Du Bois decided to attend college, the congregation of his childhood church uh, raised money for his tuition yeah. because he was not otherwise going to be able to go to school. So, yeah. again, relying on money donated by neighbors, Du Bois attended Fisk University, which is a historically black college in Nashville, Tennessee. It was formed after the Civil War mm-hmm. um, from 1855 to 1888. Uh, his travel to and residency in the South was Du Bois's first experience with Southern racism, which at the time encompassed Jim Crow laws, bigotry, suppression of black voting and uh, probably most formatively lynching. Mm-hmm. The latter most reached a peak in the next decade. After receiving his bachelor's degree from Fisk, he attended Harvard College, which did not accept course credits from Fisk because, of course, they didn't. Yeah. Uh, Du Bois had always had wanted to attend Harvard uh, immediately upon graduation from high school. Okay. But they could not afford it. He couldn't afford to go. He would have been able to get in. His grades were good enough, but he couldn't afford it. So he went after there. So from 1888 to 1890, Du Bois paid his way through three years of Harvard with money from summer jobs and inheritance, scholarships and loans from friends. In 1890, Harvard awarded Du Bois his second bachelor's degree. So again, they didn't. Re- so he had already got his degree from Fisk. Yeah, they didn't recognize any of that. He went to Harvard, got another degree. Okay, uh, he was cum laude. That was in history. In okay. 1891, he received a scholarship to attend the sociology graduate school at Harvard. Studied for two years at the University of Berlin before completing his graduate studies in 1895, and became the first African American to be awarded a PhD from Harvard. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, right off the bat, uh, we we have got him now. We're 1890. We have a PhD. He is now Dr. Du Bois. Yeah. yeah. And I will refer to him as such throughout because the general when when in his biographies, when he was at when people ask kind of how did you address him? How was he addressed? Um, It was always Dr. Du Bois. He was very formal. Uh, He he felt he had earned that title. And, oh, and he did, yeah, he, and he did absolutely. And, and most people like Doctor, you know, yeah, exactly. And there, there are there are people that don't, but but in this case, he he earned it, and that's how I will refer to him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't go home and and you know tell my wife like, hey, Doctor Baby, let's, <laughs> let's go cuddle. But you well, know, I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure he asked his wife to do it, but but we'll get to that. <laughs> but usually, yeah, usually public is you know exactly. Doctor, yeah. In the summer of 1894, Du Bois received several job offers, including one from the prestigious Tuskegee Institute. Oh, guys, we're going to get into the Tuskegee Institute, but not right now. He accepted a teaching job at Wilberforce College, uh, Wilberforce University in Ohio. Uh, it's no Dayton, but it's it's in Ohio. <laughs> it's in Ohio. So, you know, we're, we got there. Go back to the last episode if you don't get that reference. Uh, after two years in Wilberforce, Du Bois accepted a one-year research job from the University of Pennsylvania as an assistant in sociology in the summer of 1896. He performed sociological field research in Philadelphia's African-American neighborhoods, which formed the foundation of his landmark study, The Philadelphia Negro, which was published in 1899 while he was teaching at Atlanta University. It was the first case study of a black community in the United States. By the 1890s, Philadelphia's black neighborhoods had a negative reputation in terms of crime, poverty, and mortality. Du Bois's book undermined the stereotypes with empirical evidence and shaped his approach to segregation and its negative impact on black lives and reputations. This is something you're going to see commonly with Du Bois and especially in the book that we will be reading. So he's telling you if you're West Philadelphia born and raised. Don't you son of a bitch. That is my job. Don't you don't you do this. No, but it is. It is. It's interesting. It was the he was. This is something again that that, that black reconstruction absolutely is. It's yeah. going to be a thorough debunking of a stereotype with actual facts and actual evidence um, that kind of change how that 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 narrative goes. Okay. Um, 
The methodology employed in the Philadelphia Negro, namely the description and the mapping of social characteristics onto neighborhood areas, was a forerunner to the studies under the Chicago School of Sociology. Now, the Chicago School of Sociology is not the Chicago School of Economics. Okay. They do not necessarily go hand in hand. Um, Interesting fact, there is a uh, there's a Chicago. uh, I, I believe it is out of the Chicago School of Sociology. There is a giant study and I'm trying to think of the name of it right now because I'm a part of it. Um it's oh my god now i gotta pause for a second i almost i i need to know this um that basically has been tracking they started with my mom when my mom was a kid basically picked a subset of the population and did interview like really extensive like it's like a four-hour interview that i have to do every four years um but they do a uh they do this the norc yes nort thank you god damn it yes 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 we found it okay uh, yeah, at the University of Chicago. There it is. All right. And I think it's out of the School of Sociology. Okay. Um, or it's out of the School of Economics, and I'm a goddamn sociopath, but, you know, one or the other. NORC, it's the one of the largest independent social research organizations, 1741, National Opinion Research Center, down Chicago offices. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, it is the, it is basically, it, they've been doing it generationally to try and come up with, to, so they followed all these people and then their kids and then their kids' kids. So now my, my son will be the, my mom, like third, oh, wow. third or fourth generation in it. Yeah. Um, and then they released the studies for all sorts of stuff. Now I'm sure they probably use it for nefarious purposes, but they, uh, sure. They also do. It's very interesting. Like they've been able to show then generationally now the impact of education. Like if a parent went to school, how does that impact? And because they ask all sorts of questions just about quality of life and your attitudes towards life and happiness and and general well-being and earnings. And it's basically able to correlate over now generationally. How how did that track and how how did the different? It's very interesting to be a part of. It's kind of wild. Also, they pay me like 125 bucks every couple of years just to sit there and answer questions for them. So I'm okay with it. Nice. Nice. Um, But that was a complete divergence. And I apologize for when you have to come back and edit it. Sucker. Um, (laughs) So that was done at the University of Chicago. So while taking part in the American Negro Academy, ANA, in 1897, Du Bois presented a paper in which he rejected Frederick Douglass's plea for black Americans to integrate into white society. He wrote, we are Negroes, members of a vast historic race that from the very dawn of creation has slept, but half awakening in the dark forests of its African fatherland. In August of 1897, in the August of 1897 issue of the Atlantic Monthly, Du Bois published Strivings of the Negro People. His first work aimed at the general public, in which he enlarged upon his thesis that African Americans should embrace their African heritage while contributing to American society. His first major academic work was his book, The Philadelphia Negro, 1899. It was a detailed and comprehensive sociological study of the African-American people of Philadelphia based on the field work he did in 96 to 97. The work was a breakthrough in scholarship because of the first scientific study of African-Americans, major contribution to early scientific sociology in the U.S. And in the study, Du Du Bois, fuck me running. (laughs) In the study, Du Bois coined the term the submerged 10th to describe the black underclass. Okay. Uh, and later in 1903, he popularized the term the talented 10th applied to society's elite class. Du Bois's terminology reflected his opinion that the elite of a nation, both black and white, were critical to achievement and culture. This is mm. part of now. And this is this is important for Du Bois. And it's why okay. I like him as a figure, um, because he is absolutely someone that did not 
did not have it 100% right to start with. Yeah. Recognized when that was the case yeah. and was able to move on from it. Yeah. But this is very much a part of his early, early thinking is this concept that you needed the... It, I think part of it mirrors... He, I, 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 and this is absolutely bullshit because it doesn't, but he, I feel like there's a lot of, I feel a lot of similarity to his, his course and my course over the sense of mm. his, 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 his intentions were always pure and always, he was never, even when he's in his possibly a little bit eugenic phase, it is yeah. at the, it is, its intent is to advance the African nation people sure. and, and to make life better and to ju- justify their, their, them being considered full citizens and all of that. But it's still misguided. Yeah. Um, and he recognizes that and is able to, to come back. But this is an important concept to understand. The Talented 10th is something he is very, very known for. Um, Du Bois's terminology reflected his opinion the elite of a nation, but black and white were critical to achievement and culture. Yeah, and progress. Yep. Du Bois wrote in this period in a dismissive way of the underclass, describing them as lazy or unreliable. But in contrast to other scholars, he attributed many of their societal problems to the ravages of slavery. And this again gets into, so again, he's looking at, you know, if you have a, you know, the peasant class, sure. quote unquote, the, you know, if you're lumping proletariat, which he wouldn't have understood at the time because he had not studied Marx to this point. Yeah. Um, but he's able to at least acknowledge that there's material conditions that cause that. So he's probably sure. still attributing, he's probably still uh, uh, generalizing in a way that he shouldn't, mm-hmm. but at least he's identifying a material cause for that that is correct. He's, he's, he's kind of doing the like, you know, of course, of course there's material causes for things and, and that's totes why the, the Europeans were, were getting on them boats and, and going yeah. everywhere, you know, exactly. type thing. Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, in 1900, Du Bois attended the first Pan-African Conference held in London from July 23rd to the 25th. This was just before the Paris Exhibition of 1900. And this was to allow tourists of African descent to attend both events. It was organized by men from the Caribbean, Haitians, Antoine Fermin and Benito Silvian, and Trinidadian barrister Henry Sylvester Williams. Du Bois played a leading role in drafting a letter addressed to the nations of the world to European leaders appealing to them to struggle against racism, to grant colonies in Africa and the West Indies the right to self-government, and to demand political and other rights for African Americans. By this time, southern states were passing new laws and constitutions to disenfranchise most African Americans, an exclusion from the political system that lasted well into the 1960s. At the conclusion of the conference, delegates unanimously adopted the address to the nations of the world and sent it to various heads of state where people of African descent were living and suffering oppression. So, again, seeing a good decolonization, pan-Africanism. He is also considered, again, I've said that he's widely considered probably the head, the start, one of the first, if not the first pure, you know, fight, you know, champion for civil rights. Yeah. He's yeah. also considered one of the first pan-Africanists. Um, okay. So, you know, he has a lot of, he is kind of the the the, the birthplace of a lot of very revolutionary yeah. theory to a certain degree. Uh, now it's first rights. Yes. Um, the address implored the United States and the imperial European nations to acknowledge and protect the rights of people of African descent to respect the integrity and independence of the free Negro, Negro states of Abyssinia, Liberia, Haiti, etc. It was signed by Bishop Alexander Walters, who was president of the Pan-African Association, the Canadian Reverend Henry V. Brown, uh, Williams, and Du Bois. The address included Du Bois's observation, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And that's another very famous phrase of his. It uh, leads off the souls of black folk, um, which is probably his other most famous work outside of black reconstruction. Um, 
In the first decade of the new century, Du Bois emerged as a spokesperson for his race, second only to Booker T. Washington. Mm. And mm. here comes mm. the fun. Oh boy! And we're oh, I'm going to oh save boy. a lot of the. That's I, that's a name that that's going to draw some reaction right there. I'm going to save a lot of the juiciest parts of this for when we go on proles, uh, just because that. So again, let's remember. Let's remember the last time we talked about Booker T. Washington. Yeah. Uh, it was when we were describing uh, Harry Haywood's father. Mm-hmm. Harry Haywood's yeah. father was described Good. as a Busher, Booker T. Washington Negro. Yes. Uh, yes. Good old chapter one. Good old chapter one. Things and were we going good in Kansas at the time. I don't know if we really fully kind of understood why that was a bad thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It really never really sunk home. It just kind of felt like an okay. All right. I didn't really know much about what Booker T. Washington did. Yeah. I just it just seemed kind of like okay, reformist at the time makes sense because they they just got you know the freedom from the Civil War. It, it made made sense exactly. Right. Um. So he he's he's opposed to Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington is the head of Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Yeah. It wielded tremendous influence within the African American and white communities. Washington was the architect of the Atlanta Compromise. Oh, what's that? Well, it's an unwritten deal he struck in 1895, where Southern white leaders. Uh, who dominated the state governments after Reconstruction. Essentially, the agreement provided that Southern blacks, who overwhelmingly lived in rural communities, would submit to current discrimination, segregation, and disenfranchisement, and non-unionized employment, on the condition that Southern whites would permit blacks to receive a basic education and some economic opportunities and justice within the legal system, and that Northern whites would invest in Southern enterprises and fund black educational charities. Now we'll get into this more when we get to the uh, when we get to the proles guys. But uh, do you know who was funding uh, Mr. Washington's institute? That, well, heavily donating when he was crafting the Atlanta Compromise. I, uh, I don't. Oh, some some, some Carnegie, a little bit of Rockefeller, mm, uh, okay. a little J.P. Morgan. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay. Weird. He got a lot of influx of cash from those guys right as he was writing. A, uh, a a compromise that has said, uh, that said black, black people won't go in unions. Yeah, that's what you took away from that because the other part was black people should just agree that discrimination yeah. and segregation are okay. Yeah, yeah. No, as no, no, long no. as as long as white people agree to give them some form of justice under the law and a basic education. Yeah, it was agreeing to forfeit their their full equality under the law that they were entitled under the Constitution and basically concede to white plantation and slaveholders it, it was it was the proto jim crow law and it was put forward by booker t washington ostensibly a champion for the rights of yeah. black americans yeah it was a horrendous selling out of your people on a level that i cannot even fathom yeah it's bad um, and it it it's it gets worse than that it's very very bad um, so again, you can imagine then when uh, writing his autobiography later in life, uh, when when Harry Haywood calls his father a Booker T. Washington Negro, that is essentially saying that his father was complicit and okay with the idea of being less than and being, which absolutely the way you see his father portrayed, yeah, yeah. and the way he cows to the the you know to the things around him, that absolutely tracks. That, yeah. that makes it up. Yeah. As and opposed to his shotgun blasting grandfather. Exactly. Exactly. Because there's there are two totally different mindsets there. And that's yeah. it's so yeah. 
So that's uh, that's the Atlanta Comprise, and that's as far as we're going to get into that particular you know, a little bit more. But we'll, I'm not going to dive too deep into that. Okay. Uh, but we will, if you want more of that, listen to Proles sometime in March. Yeah. Uh, despite initially sending congratulations to Washington for his Atlanta expositions speech, uh, Du Bois later came to oppose Washington's plan, along with many other African Americans: Archibald Grimke, Kelly Miller, James Weldon Johnson, and Paul Lawrence Dunbar, representative of the class of educated blacks that Du Bois would later call the talented tenth. Du Bois felt that the African Americans should fight for equal rights and higher opportunities rather than passively submit to segregation and mm-hmm. discrimination of Washington's Atlanta Compromise. Well, duh. Yeah. Uh, du Bois was inspired to greater activism by the lynching of Sam Hose, which occurred near Atlanta in 1899. Hose was tortured, burned, and hung by a mob of 2,000 whites. Jeez. And there are, unfortunately, pictures of that out there that were included in this article when I was researching yeah. it. and. It's just not a great way to spend your day. No. no. Uh, when walking through Atlanta to discuss the lynching with newspaper editor Joel Chandler Harris, Du Bois encountered Hose's burned knuckles in a storefront display. The episode's... Yeah. So imagine that. He, literally, they took his hands Jeez, that they cut off after they bur- lynched him, after he'd been burned, and they were displaying them in a storefront window. Jesus Christ. Can you imagine walking by and seeing that and knowing that that's what is thought of you, essentially? I I cannot even no. wrap my head around that. No, it's not even something you can fathom. It's it's stunning. Um. And stunning is what it was because the episode stunned Dr. Du Bois and he resolved that one could not be a calm, cool, and detached scientist while Negroes were lynched, murdered, and starved. So you can start to see, you can start to see the fire of, yeah. And again, you can under his, all of his previous, uh, points up to this point, his Mm -hmm. kind of elitist attitudes. Yeah. This all, which think, think of his his background. background, Yeah. Exactly. His material conditions were grew up in a a neighborhood that was ostensibly, Mm -hmm. you know, liberal or, or you know, not not as as heavily segregated, yeah, um, or racist, overtly racist. Got a got two different bachelor's degrees, followed by a doctorate, and then spent some time in Europe. I mean, he has lived for for a person of his time a charmed life to a certain extent in that regard. Yeah. So this is the first time he's confronted with that, and when he is, is definitely starting to change something yeah. inside of him. Uh, Dr. Du Bois realized that the cure wasn't simply telling people the truth; it was inducing them to act on the truth. In 1901, Du Bois wrote a review critical of Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery, which he later expanded and published to a wider audience as the essay of Mr. Booker T. Washington and others in the souls of black folk, which we will get to if we don't get to it on this one. We'll talk about it on proles, but I, I, yeah. that is a very good uh, – the, the souls of black folk is essentially like a collection of essays. They're all like short pieces that all sure. work together into a greater narrative. And it's extremely good, and I consider trying to incorporate it somehow in here, but I just, the individual letters are all amazing. It's worth reading on its own. Um, but it's also one of those things that it's extens- it's uh, it's absolutely not, one, it's not a revolutionary work in, okay. a, in a sense. Yeah. So it's very much like if Wretched of the Earth had no revolutionary context. It is just a very, it explains the black experience in America so so eloquently and so powerfully um but that's not for me okay um so i didn't i didn't i don't want to expropriate yeah. it anyway i don't have to yeah later in life du bois regretted having been critical of washington in those essays which is 
weird. One of the contrasts between the two leaders was their approach to education. Washington felt that African-American schools should focus primarily on industrial education topics, such as agricultural and mechanical skills. Again, Washington just kind of trying to play this. Yeah. No, just be a good cog in the capital, in the white man's <laughs> Go to trade machine. school, get a job. Yeah. To prepare Southern folk, blacks for the opportunities in the rural areas where most lived, which again can be seen as a reflection of the material conditions. You want to, you want to survive where you are. Sure. This is what you Absolutely. do. Fine. Uh, but Du Bois felt that black schools should focus more on liberal arts and academic curriculum, including the classics, arts, and humanities, because liberal arts were required to develop a leadership elite, which he thought was necessary to tell. And I can't, you can see that. You can see a sort of vanguard. You need, yeah, because you need some kind of like, spearhead and you need some some kind of political education for everyone 100% you don't just want to train out an army of of capitalist cogs like that's not gonna that's not gonna change things that's just gonna change you from being an actual slave to a wage slave and Du Bois would realize that later as he became more uh, more aware of of socialism yeah 1905 Du Bois and several other African-American civil rights activists including Frederick McGee Jesse Max Barber and William Monroe Trotter met in Canada near Niagara Falls There, they wrote the Declaration of Principles opposing the Atlanta Compromise and incorporated this as the Niagara Movement in 1906. Um, I wasn't familiar with this before, but apparently that was a very big uh, initial push. This was kind of the proto-NAACP. Okay. Um, Du Bois and other Niagraites, um, which Niagara, Niagraites written in a <laughs> when that comes just spell that out for yourself and then put Niagara that in a Niagara uh-huh, uh-huh, N-I-A-G-A-R there's too many letters that are so close to a word that I'm it comes up too much in this yeah. that I can't read that oh, that's throws, me for, that. okay. throws me for a loop when I'm reading it it's hard okay. um, but they wanted to publicize their ideals to other African Americans but most black periodicals were owned by publishers that were sympathetic to Booker T. Washington Du Bois bought a printing press and started publishing Moon Illustrated Weekly in 1905. It was the first African-American illustrated weekly, and Du Bois used it to attack Washington's positions. But the magazine lasted for only about eight months. Du Bois soon founded and edited another vehicle for his polemics, The Horizon, a journal of the color line, which debuted in 1907. Freeman H.M. Murray and Lafayette Hershaw served as The Horizon's co-editors. The Niagarites held a second conference in August 1906 in celebration of the 100th anniversary of abolitionist John Brown's birth at the Was- at the West Virginia hey, site of Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Go, John Brown. Yeah. Uh, go listen to the Pearls episode on John Brown. It is fantastic. Uh, Reverend D.C. Ransom spoke and addressed the fact that Washington's primary goal was to prepare blacks for employment in their current society. Today, two classes of Negroes are standing at the parting of the ways. The one counsels patient submission to our present humiliations and degradations. The other class believes that it should not submit to being humiliated, degraded, and remanded to an inferior place. It does not believe in bartering its manhood for the sake of gain. And that's, again, another high... Yep. This gets this is so tied so well ties into wretched of the earth of so much. what is your so what much. is you know when you take away when you try and remove someone's humanity right. what does that do to them and how does that change how they see themselves right yeah I mean this this is paralleling very well with Fanon and and you know people running up to to become human yep. you know yeah and it's very I mean it's just so 
again, this, this, the, 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 the wretched of the earth, black Bolshevik. I am so very happy. Y'all made a great choice to do black reconstruction. It just it warms, warms my heart. Cause this is a very good, uh, it ties in together. Really it's well. going to tie this all up very well. It's a magical triangle. It is a magical, magical triangle. Now I just clicked a button and I shouldn't have clicked it. Okay. Oh, there no. it is. Okay. No, it's fine. In an effort to portray the genius and humanity of the black race, Du Bois published the souls of black folk in 1903. It's a collection of 14 essays. James Walden Johnson said the book's effect on African Americans was comparable to that of Uncle Tom's Cabin. The introduction famously proclaimed that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Each chapter begins with two epigraphs, one from a white poet and one from a black spiritual, to demonstrate intellectual and cultural parity between black and white cultures. A major theme of the work was the double consciousness faced by African Americans, being both American and and black. This mm. should ring very familiar coming off of Fanon. Again, it's yeah. not a coincidence that Fanon was a clinically trained psychologist and psychiatrist, yeah. and Du Bois is a sociologist. These are yeah. very, they have very similar, they attack very similar issues in very similar ways. Yeah. Um, this was a unique identity, which according to Du Bois had been a handicap in the past, but could be a strength in the future. Henceforth, the destiny of the race could be conceived as leading neither to assimilation nor separatism, but to proud, enduring hyphenation. He saw the ability to assimilate, not assimilate, but to basically be proud, keep your African heritage, keep your culture, keep what makes you unique, and then also take advantage of the opportunities that America had and then go from there. I could already see why he likes Stalin. Because yes. there's some very national questiony things going on here. And Gears see, are turning. Yeah. Yes, it's so his. And again, he uh, never did not start perfect. Always, but nope. always there was a. I was watching a. Uh, it was a C-SPAN something or another on his biographer. And I'm going to read that biography before we do the Proles episode to make sure I get every other good tidbit I can. But there was something he said. He said he got criticized often from his uh, contemporaries because he would take a position and he would take it very, very adamantly and very, very decisively. But then over the years, his positions would change. Yeah. And people somehow saw that as, as inconsistency or a point of weakness and not as he evolved and learned and, and understood differently as he learned more. And that was, and saw that as a strength instead of a weakness. Changing your position that in the face so. of new facts. Yeah. Is not. It's not a weakness. Intellectual, intellectual inferiority or intellectual, no. you know, or, 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 you know, no one. If that were the case, I would have failed as an intellectual because I yeah. I thought I, I caved on libertarianism uh, ten years ago. Oh yeah, I mean like you know you go back ten years. I was I, <laughs> we were working together. Exactly. I was right wing douchebag. Exactly. And look at where we are now. Exactly. You, know? you you have to evolve when the material conditions change. And Du Bois did that and did that masterfully. Yeah. Um, and and sacrificed a lot doing so. Made enemies and made himself a, a target. Um, yeah. But but always stuck to where the facts led him or where he thought the facts led him at the very least. Yeah. Um, double henceforth destiny. Yeah. Two. All right. So two calamities in the autumn of 1906 shocked African Americans and they contributed to strengthening support for Du Bois's struggle for civil rights over Booker T. Washington's concept of accommodationism. First, President Teddy Roosevelt dishonorably discharged 167 black soldiers because of the because they were accused of crimes as a result of the Brownsville affair. David, do you know what the Brownsville affair is? Don't. Okay, good, because I didn't either, so I don't feel as bad. 
Uh, the Brownsville Affair, or the Brownsville Raid, was an incident of racial injustice that occurred in 1906 in okay. the southwestern United States due to resentment of white residents if, in Brownsville, Texas, woo-hoo, yeah. of the Buffalo Soldiers, black soldiers in a segregated unit stationed at nearby Fort Brown. When a white bartender was killed and a white police officer wounded by gunshots one night, townspeople accused the members of the African-American 25th Infantry Regiment. Although their commander said the soldiers had been in the barracks all night, evidence was planted against the men. Uh, basically, they were absolutely framed. It was an obvious frame up. And Teddy Roosevelt went ahead and dishonorably discharged 167 soldiers who had served honorably up to that point. Many of these discharged soldiers had served 20 plus years Jesus. and were right at retirement and were stripped of all those benefits and everything else. Wow. And this was a huge scandal, a huge uh, uh obvious just because if there's if there was one thing that kept getting preached to uh, uh, african-americans at the time was this concept of you know all of those that's when you serve yeah. things are different you know yeah and then you've proved you're one of the good ones and yeah and it was you know the civil war you saw that a little bit world war one we haven't gotten to yet but again these people served and teddy roosevelt ostensibly served with yeah african-american you know he of all people, and was considered a progressive champion, and for right. him to to do something like that on such well, he was from the the Republican Party, which at the time was was the and we're going to get into that. Yeah. There, we'll get into that during the, the Reconstruction phase. Dear God, guys, oh, we're going to get so into it. Um, all the flips and flops and all that shit. But uh, but yes, he was he he tried to run him a a, a bull moose party, which was a like a third part, the one of the few almost successful third party runs for anything. And it was a wildly progressive uh, uh, platform at the time. But uh, yeah, he got his ass kicked and went back as a Republican. Hmm. Um, so in, in September, second in September, riots broke out in Atlanta uh, that were precipitated by unfound allegations of black men assaulting white women. Wow. Where have I heard that story before? Yeah, that this seems, this seems was the course. <laughs> how I'm about to say this was the catalyst for racial tensions based on a job shortage and employers playing playing black workers against white workers a trick the capital plays so well yeah and something we we heard about a little bit again in black reconstruction mm-hmm. Ten thousand white whites rampaged through atlanta beating every black person they could find resulting in over 25 deaths in the aftermath of the 1906 violence du bois urged blacks to withdraw their support from the republican party because republican uh, Roosevelt and William Howard Taft did not sufficiently support bl- the black cause. Most African-Americans had been loyal to the Republican Party since the time of Abraham Lincoln. And oh, man, I love the, that, the, the reconstruction section because, man, we get to drag Lincoln so hard. Yeah, this, oh, I'm going to drag Lincoln so hard. This this sounds very parallel to currently now in the Democratic Party, which yes. makes sense because they flipped after the whole exactly. Southern strategy. And thing. you can see them now obviously losing that connection with the with with ostensibly a, a what should be what they they once they considered once they considered black people a base of support. They yeah. no longer they, they, they did. They, they just stopped. Yeah. Doing anything. They stopped yeah. caring at all. Yeah, which is amazing because, like, if you think, you know, the liberal talented 10th Du Bois, Du Bois. Aha! Not just yeah. me. Um, was, uh, was still like, you know, don't, don't fucking just support this party blindly. And yet there are people that have trouble with that today with the Democratic Party. Yeah. It is, it is definitely one of the, one of the faults, you know, vote blue no matter who, you know, we, you know, the whole gang. Yeah. Um, 
Du Bois wrote an essay, A Litany at Atlanta, which asserted that the riot demonstrated that the Atlanta Compromise was a failure. Despite upholding their end of the bargain, blacks had failed to receive the legal justice that the South was supposed to offer. Mm-hmm. Historian David Levering, Levering Lewis has written that the Compromise no longer held because the white patrician planters who took a paternalistic role had been replaced by aggressive businessmen who were willing to pit blacks against whites. Hey, one, the concept that there was a paternalistic planter class is the most fucked up shit I've ever heard in my absolutely, life. Absolutely, yeah. Go get fucked, Dr. D- David Devering Lewis. Um, but two, yeah, that's what capital does. Yeah. Uh, also, also feeling a lot of the reminder that black people are a colonized people within this country. Yes. Uh, as I feel parallels with like, looking at Iran now and the Iranian nuclear deal and, and things like that. You know, I mean, the, you make this agreement. It's already a huge compromise where you're giving away all of your leverage just to settle things, just to not die. And then you hold up your end and then it's cut from underneath you. And then there's still discussion on if you should break up your end of the bargain after the bargain is already destroyed by the other yeah, side. Yeah. Uh, another great example of that. Uh, every Native American in this country. Oh, ever, 100%. All of the treaties. All of the 100% treaties. 100% of indigenous people in this country. Because all of the every treaties. single time they got hosed. Yes. I mean, just completely and utterly. All of the treaties. So yes. bad. All right. Uh, these two calamities were watershed moments for the African-American community, making the ascendancy of Du Bois's vision of equal rights, uh, marking the ascendancy of Du Bois's version of equal rights. So this is when uh, uh, we stopped. So this is around again. What did we say? 19... 1907? 19... 19- yeah, yeah, 1906, 1907. Um, this is when the Booker T. Washington style is is losing its favor and Du Bois's concept. Now, again, and this du is Bo- kind of the civil rights jump. It this, sounds like the equal rights. And- a little bit. And then that kind of leads you directly into the next section, which is in May 1909, Du Bois attended the National Negro Conference in New York. <laughs> the meeting led to the creation of the National Negro Committee, which was chaired by Oswald Villiard and dedicated to campaigning for civil rights, equal voting rights and equal educational opportunities. Following spring in 1910, at the second National Negro Conference, the attendees created the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. Yeah. Now, uh, we know from Haywood, and we'll learn a little bit more as we go here, but we know that at its inception and for a while, the NAACP was not... Certainly not a radical or revolutionary organization, no. but even beyond that, not even a great organization. No, no, no. I mean, happy to sell black people up the river at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Um, down the river? Up the river was a good thing. You wanted to get Down up. the river, whatever. Um, I don't know expressions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know words good. I don't know words good. Them words, it's stupid. Uh, but, uh, but of course, you know, because of the overwhelming chauvinism in the Communist Party, yeah. uh, they got to get out in front of the Communist Party and, and take the lead on, on the black cause. Otherwise, yes. they would have, I mean, rightly fizzled out in probably the 50s or something. Correct. Know? Correct. Um, but it is interesting. Uh, du Bois, at Du Bois's suggestion, the word colored rather than black was used because he wanted to include dark skinned people everywhere. So I think that was a positive in Du Bois's favorite yeah. column in that in that particular instance is that he he saw this as an organization that would that would fight for equal Start, rights across the board. There's there's another thing where where you see the tick and and I you know Du Bois has a very very strong reputation of of all these black revolutionaries we know you know he's the one that was in close closest with indigenous people and the indigenous cause. Yes, you're starting to see that exactly. form right there. 
Uh, NAACP leaders offered Du Bois the position of director of publicity and research. He accepted the job in the summer of 1910 and moved to New York after resigning from Atlanta University. His primary duty was editing the NAACP's monthly magazine, which he named The Crisis. Um, you see that a lot with uh, revolutionary papers. They always have really great names. Like yeah. I think uh, – What's his face? Uh, Camus Combat was the was the French resistance magazine that he was editing at the time. Like Fanon, yeah. I think. We had a good, they all they always have great like aggressive names. Well, I mean, Pravda isn't that truth? I mean, I'm sure it's something equal. Definitely better than Jacobin. I can tell you yeah. that much. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely not. You know, uh, I don't know the Business Times. <laughs> the Economist. Business Insider. God damn it. The first issue appeared in November 1910, and Du Bois pronounced that its aim was to set out those facts and arguments which show the danger of race prejudice, particularly as manifested today toward colored people. The journal was phenomenally successful, and its circulation would reach 100,000 in 1920, which is huge for the time. Yeah. Uh, typical articles in the early editions included one that inveighed against the dishonesty and parochialism of black churches. Uh, that is the thing you'll see about Du Bois again, kind of the, it goes to the educational part of him, but he's very skeptical of uh, organized religion. Okay. Um, and one that discussed Afrocentric origin, the Afrocentric origins of Egyptian civilization, which I thought was really cool. Hmm. Um, an important Du Bois editorial from 1911 helped initiate a nationwide push to induce the federal government to outlaw lynching. Wild that you need a federal government to outlaw lynching. Also, also wild that you need a push to do that. That, yeah. Hey, guys, you shouldn't murder is people. It- du Bois employing the sarcasm he frequently used. This is something great. His, he yeah. is so, I've, I've watched, I think I sent you the link to it. There's a, there's a 30 minute speech. There's very few of his oh, yeah. speaking games, but his one on social, he's. It was interesting because like he uses sarcasm. It's clearly sarcasm, but bites really well. He uses it so smoothly and then he moves on so fast that people aren't even they can laughing. Barely, they can barely register. And They're like appar- racing to laugh before appar- his next line. Apparently it was, it was so, for him it was so, when he spoke, he commanded rooms. He was so like to the point and so serious that when his Sarcasm hit people like it caught people off guard and it took them a second to catch that he was actually telling a joke. Um, but it works. So it works very well. Um, but he, he used frequently he commented on a lynching in Pennsylvania. Yeah. The point is he was black. Blackness must be punished. Blackness is the crime of crimes. It is therefore necessary, as every white scoundrel in the nation knows, to let slip no opportunity of punishing this crime of crimes. Of course, if possible, the pretext should be great and overwhelming. Some awful, stunning crime made even more horrible by the reporter's imagination. Failing this, mere murder, arson, barn burning, or impudence may do. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. The guys, we got it. We we got another one. We got another one. Lennon, <laughs> Lennon had it. Fanon had it. Guys, Du Bois, du Bois got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in 1915, Du Bois published *The Negro: A General History of Black Africans* and the first of its kind in English. The book rebutted claims of African inferiority and would come to serve as the basis of much of Afrocentric historiography in the 20th century. The Negro predicated unity and solidarity for colored people around the world, and it influenced many who ended up supporting the pan-African movement. So, again, just things things that this that, that Du Bois is at the center of that you just yeah. but he never comes up as the central figure. And it's interesting why, um, which I think is all purely skeptical, but, you know, speculation. But I, I don't I don't know why he doesn't get brought up as much as he should. Hmm. 
1915, the Atlantic Monthly carried an essay by, do- uh, by Dr. Du Bois, The African Roots of the War, which consolidated Du Bois's ideas on capitalism and race. In it, he argued that the scramble for Africa was at the root of World War I. He also anticipated later communist doctrine by suggesting that wealthy capitalists had pacified white workers by giving them just enough wealth to prevent them from revolting and by threatening them with competition by the lower cost of labor of colored workers. Ding, ding, ding. Damn. You just just crushing it. For a guy who has not studied Marx to this point, to our knowledge, that's that's pretty astute. Jesus. He's He's, he's got it. It's it's like he kind of knows what he's doing. Uh, Du Bois used his influential role in the NAACP to oppose a variety of racist incidents. When the silent film The Birth of a Nation premiered in 1915. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this was the uh, this was the thing that and I'm going to read this biography of Du Bois. Again, I was talking about the C-SPAN interview I watched. Uh, The guy who wrote the biography is saying all of the right things and things are going great. And then he gets to Birth of a Nation. This is an African-American gentleman. And he gets to Birth of a Nation. And he's asked, what do you think of the film? And he says, it's a masterpiece. What? Yeah. He, he basically, igno- he did that thing where you acknowledge, where you try to separate it as some, he's like, I don't think we've progressed past W.E.B. Griffith in terms of our camera techniques and our, our scale. Mm. And he moved, it was such a huge, it was a, it was a masterwork of, fi- of cinematography and all this other stuff. And he's trying to, it's just, it's so, it, it, it makes the rest of it ring so hollow. It, it was, the white nationalism movie like what yes what yes what cinematography fucking matters no that's but that's again that is the argument is that they they, they care he i think he cares more for art and and this concept than, of grand art than he does for anything else i think everything is elementary again he's a he was a he has the martin luther king chair at rutgers he's he's a tenured he's a lifetime appointed professor he has no integration he has no concept he's in the beltway he's doing c-span interviews he's going up for book of the year award and who is this now i i'd have to go look at the guy's name it's the guy that wrote the what is considered i think the seminal it's a two-part biography it's a giant monster work on on du bois Hmm. uh, his first part of his life and second half of his life and he uh, from what i understand he did good his historiography is is well done he presents du bois in a positive way he speaks positively of du bois's time in the party um and of his his fight for socialism and that he sees socialism as the way forward in the 20th century but he just says dumb shit like that and it makes me wonder what the fuck he's doing jeez um and how detached he has to be from from reality for that kind of a sentence to make sense right um uh, du Bois and the NAACP led the fight to ban the movie because of its racist portrayal of blacks as brutish and lustful. Yeah, the fight yeah. was not successful and possibly contributed to the film's fame. But the publicity drew many new supporters to the NAACP. So there's that con- there's that concept that the controversy of the NAACP you know sparked around it actually the, helped the film. Yeah, the the any publicity is good publicity. Uh huh. Yeah. I think who was president? That was it. Might have been Woodrow Wilson. Nineteen. Yeah, nineteen fifty would have been Wilson. Yeah. I think his original statement was that it is it was uh, Birth of a Nation was history written in lightning, and then he had to very quickly retract that statement uh, when he realized how fucking yeah. wildly racist. I think it that was. probably had a little more to do the film's popularity than the movement against it. I think. Uh, I think any. I think anyone. Anyone who who gained popularity with the movement against it, um, after after seeing the fight against it, already d- didn't really need the movies thoughts to be told to them yeah. so to speak but again it was this it was this telling of reconstruction it yeah. was that was the, the birth of a nation was ostensibly a telling of reconstruction uh and the telling that 
portrayed the dominant narrative at the time that would continue until Du Bois wrote his book yeah. that Reconstruction was a failure because black people are inferior and you need white saviors to come in and save you. Yeah. yeah. And they just happen to be the Ku Klux Klan. Hi. We're yeah, the Klan. And, and of course, you know, it's totally not racist to just think of reconstruction as, as a failure and the problem after world war two, Hillary fucking Clinton in the campaign. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's an idiot. <laughs> the private sector was not the only source of racism under president Wilson, the plight of African Americans and government jobs suffered. Many federal government agencies adopted whites only employment practices. Okay. The army excluded blacks from officer ranks and immigration services prohibited the immigration of persons of African ancestry. So guys, all this, we, we always let people in. No, yeah, we, no, no, we fucking didn't. We've no. been, we've been white supremacists from the get go. Don't know. Well, get you ever notice the caricature of immigration is through Ellis Island yeah. is through Ellis Island. Like, where is Ellis Island pointed at? Oh, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, it's just so bad. Uh, du Bois wrote an editorial in 1914 deploring the dismissal of blacks from federal posts mm-hmm. and supported William Monroe Trotter when Trotter brusquely confronted Wilson about Wilson's failure to fulfill his campaign promise of justice for blacks. Mm-hmm. They basically, he, Wilson was a Democrat, was a Republican mm-hmm. uh, and campaigned on the concept of I'm going to take care of, of the African-American community. And, and they said it, it just went back on it. Just absolutely. Oh, right. yeah. No, Woodrow Wilson was wild racist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he did. Okay. Yeah. yeah, 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 he was. The crisis continued to wage a campaign against lynching. Again, wild. He still need that. Um, but again, we know from Harry Haywood yeah. that that was a thing that the at con, that contemporaneously the Communist Party was was fighting in mm-hmm. the. Now Haywood at this time wouldn't be there because 1915 we're still doing World War One. Yeah, so Haywood wouldn't have been the... around like France and stuff. Yeah, so this it's just interesting to see where these two are on the timeline sure. and where they're kind of you know where they're pinging around each other. Um, in 1915, I published an article uh, with a year by year tabulation of. 2,732 lynchings from 1884 to 1914. God. Yep. Uh, The April 1916 edition covered the group lynching of six African-Americans in Lee County, Georgia. Later in 1916, the Waco Horror article covered the lynching of Jesse Washington, a mentally impaired 17-year-old African-American. The article broke new ground by underly- under utilizing undercover reporting to expose the conduct of local whites in Waco, Texas. Oh, yeah. Every, I mean, everything everything came out like so bad. Like mm-hmm. it should it should have the word horror. It's so bad. But we were talking about two thousand lynchings. Two thousand seven hundred thirty. No, I got got it. Got it. Fine. Three thousand lynchings. There you go. And then. Then you added the word horror about one of them, like above the other lynchings. Oh, because it was a group lynching of six. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was a big, yeah, yeah. Jeez. They they went for the, they went for the, you know, the six pack there. <laughs> it was, uh, it was atrocious. Yeah. And it's, uh, I, I can't, I, I just can't. The early 20th century was the era of the great migration of blacks from the southern United States to the Northeast, okay. Midwest, and the West. Du Bois wrote an editorial. I'm, I'm wondering why with all the lynchings. Yeah, what, why would you leave? <laughs> yeah. Du Bois wrote an editorial supporting the Great Migration because he felt it would help blacks escape Southern racism, find economic opportunities, and assimilate into American society. Okay. Also in the 1910s, the American eugenics movement was in its infancy. Oh, good. Hey. Good. Hooray. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. And many leading eugenicists were openly racist. What? Oh, yeah. What? Oh, yeah. Guys. 
guys. Are you telling? Are you telling me Henry Goddard was was not yeah, racist? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, defining blacks as a lower race. Du Bois opposed this view. Weird uh, as an unscientific aberration, but still maintained the basic principle of eugenics. That different people have different inborn characteristics that make them more or less suited for specific kinds of employment. And that by encouraging the most talented members of all races to procreate would better the stocks of humanity. Again, he's not perfect, and I'm not no. going to sugarcoat that. No, um, no. He's because it does good, no one good. Yeah, no, he's good. good lesson in growing, but... Yes. And at the time bad. when it first... Okay. At the time when it first sprouted... Again, this, think of his other underlying, his his main thrust at this point, the concept of the talented 10th. Eugenics yeah. was a sci- it made was a sense. quote unquote scientific justification for something that he innately felt. Yeah. And he latched onto it for a time. Yeah. Yeah. As the United States prepared to enter World War One in 1917, Du Bois's colleagues in the NAACP, Joel Springarn, uh, established a camp to train African-Americans to serve as officers in the United States military. All right. Yeah. Cool. The camp was controversial because some whites felt that blacks were not qualified to be officers. Oh, surprising. <laughs> uh, and some blacks felt that African-Americans should not participate in what they considered a white man's war. All okay. Uh, yeah. And we heard that critique yeah. loud and clear during Black Bolshevik. Yeah. Du Bois supported Spring Yarn's training camp, but was disappointed when the army forcibly retired one of its few black officers, Charles Young, on a pretense of ill health. I believe, and I would need to go back and check it, but I am almost 100% positive that exact instance is referenced in Black Bolshevik. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, it is, yeah. Almost 100% positive. The army agreed to create 1,000 officer positions for blacks, but insisted that 250 come from enlisted men, conditioned to taking orders from whites rather than independent-minded blacks that came from the camp. Over 700,000 blacks enlisted on the first day of the draft, but were subject to discriminatory conditions with prompted vocal protest from Du Bois. I just... There keeps being more things that come out of your mouth with the racisms. Oh, buddy. Like, like... Oh, buddy. Like, there's all this racism, and then there's new racist things. Mm -hmm. And it's just... It's just spewing, just coming mm-hmm. straight out. Yep. 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 Welcome to my day. Welcome to my last couple days. It's been fun. Okay. After the East St. Louis riots occurred in the summer of 1917. Oh, those weren't good. Du Bois traveled to St. Louis to report on the riots. Between 40 and 250 African-Americans were massacred by whites, primarily due to resentment caused by St. Louis industry hiring blacks to replace striking white workers. Yeah. Du Bois's reporting resulted in an article, The Massacre of East St. Louis, published in the September issue of The Crisis, which contained photographs and interviews detailing the violence. To publicly demonstrate the black community's outrage over the riots, Du Bois organized the Silent Parade, a march of around 9,000 African-Americans down New York City's Fifth Avenue, the first parade of its kind in New York, and the second instance of blacks publicly demonstrating for civil rights in history. The Houston riot of 1917 disturbed Du Bois and was a major setback to efforts to permit African-Americans to become military officers. The riot began after Houston police arrested and beat two black soldiers. In response, over 100 black soldiers took to the streets of Houston and killed 16 whites. A military court-martial was held and 19 of the soldiers were hung. 67 others were imprisoned. In spite of the Houston riot, Du Bois and others successfully pressed the army to accept the officers trained at Springer's camp, resulting in over 600 black officers joining the army in October 1917. I know for a fact the Houston riots were talked about during. I was going to say that sounded really. That well, app, it came up because they were traveling yeah. through that area when right. that all this went down. Yeah. Um, 
Federal officials concerned that about subversive viewpoints expressed by NAACP leaders attempted to frighten the NAACP by threatening it with investigations. Surprise! Du Bois was not intimidated, and in 1918, he predicted that World War I would lead to the overthrow of the European colonial system and to the liberation of colored people worldwide, in China, in India, and especially in America. Well, he got halfway there. Yeah. I mean, he was he was on the right track. Yeah, he had the right idea. Yeah. yeah. NAACP chairman Joel Springer was enthusiastic about the war. That's not a good thing to be, Joel. No. And he persuaded Du Bois to consider an officer's commission in the army. Don't do that. Contingent on Du Bois writing an editorial repudiating his anti-war stance. Du Bois accepted the article and wrote the pro-war close ranks editorial in June 1918 and soon thereafter received a commission in the army. Many black leaders who wanted to leverage the war to gain civil rights for African-Americans criticized Du Bois for his sudden reversal. Southern officers in Du Bois's unit objected to his presence and his commission was withdrawn. Again, people are not perfect. Nope. And this is all. And there was an end to this mean like, you know, he thought. Uh-huh. Yeah. But at the same time, it is important to recognize. I, okay. I will only tell you because we're not going to get there by the end. Just just know that the end of this is. D- Dr. Du Bois live, uh, uh, expatriating for the United States to live the last li- years of his life in Ghana as a devout communist. Um, and one of, wrote one of the more stirring, uh, eulogies of Stalin. Um, he gets there. I promise you he gets there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, and it's, he, it's interesting that like he's looking at World War One, which I mean, to be fair, that was presented to him a little bit and he's predicting the future, uh, with regards to decolonialism. Better than like, say, Marx, who was insistent that socialism would come out in the industrialized yeah. countries. And yet he 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 on the right track. And there's a black movement against the war kind of in, in, in a Lenin style, you know, and he turns on that. It's just, And it's interesting that we don't I guess that because the material conditions were so different at sure. the time. Did, did Haywood enlist or was Haywood drafted? He would enlisted. I think he enlisted. Yeah. So it's interesting that Du Bois, I think it's because du, du Bois at the time was considered someone that should have known better, I guess. Right, right. Versus like Haywood wouldn't. Have at known the time, yeah. it, he was so burgeoning in it. So, but again, Haywood also, or, or Du Bois was definitely not a socialist at the time. He wasn't no. a revolutionary by any stretch of the Yeah, whereas Haywood at least had like his brother to, to educate him on stuff. Well, I think most of his brothers turning towards marxism it specifically came, that came much came, that came later came that later. came later as well his so, brother yeah his brother was rebellious to his father but wasn't really necessarily Mar- uh, marxist in any no, sense no 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 but uh but again also it was hard to be prior to world war one it was probably rather hard to be a marxist because sure. until the, so until the so until, until the revolution how do you yeah it was just some european guy that was yeah saying I mean, it's a, it's a weird shit, esoteric yeah. theory until it actually goes into practice right. in 1917 right um so when the war ended, Du Bois, uh, du Bois traveled to Europe in 1919 to attend the first Pan-African Congress and to interview African-American soldiers for a planned book on their experiences in World War I. He was trailed by U.S. agents who were searching for evidence of treasonous activities. Uh, <laughs> du Bois discovered that the vast majority of black American soldiers were relegated to menial labor as stevedores or, and laborers. Some units were armed, and one in particular, the 92nd Division, the Buffalo Soldiers, engaged in combat. 
Du Bois discovered widespread racism in the army, surprise, and concluded that the army commanded discouraged African Americans from joining the army, discredited the accomplishments of black soldiers, and promoted bigotry. And, as we know, in thanks large part to the uh, uh, black Bolshevik, also issued that sweet little uh, directive that oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> explicitly explaining racism like, to the make, French. Make sure you're racist, France. It's make super make sure. sure you're racist. It's important. Don't forget your racism. We'll, even, we'll, we'll lynch a guy for you, just to show yeah, you. Yeah, just to, just an example. You will do the first one for you and then you'll know. That's right. Um, after returning from Europe, Du Bois was more determined than ever to gain equal rights for African-Americans. Black soldiers returning from the overseas felt a new sense of power and worth and representatives an emerging attitude referred to as the new Negro. In an editorial returning soldiers, he wrote, but by the God of heaven, we are cowards and jackasses. If now that the war is over, we do not marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, longer, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. Many blacks moved to northern cities in search of work, and some northern white workers resented their competition. This labor strife was one of the causes of the Red Summer of 1919, a horrific series of race riots across America in which over 300 African-Americans were killed in over 30 cities. It's a fun North American tour. Yeah. Du Bois documented the atrocities in the pages of the crisis, culminating in a December publication of a gruesome photograph of a lynching that occurred during the Omaha, Nebraska race riot. The most egregious episode during Red Summer was a vicious attack on blacks in Elaine, Arkansas, in which nearly 200 blacks were murdered. Reports coming out of the South blamed the blacks, alleging that they were conspiring to take over the government. <laughs> I got nothing. Oh my God. I got nothing. Infuriated with the distortions, Du Bois published a letter in the New York World claiming that the only crime the black sharecroppers had committed was daring to challenge their white landlords by hiring an attorney to investigate contractual irregularities. Oh, my God. Over 60 of the surviving blacks were arrested and tried for conspiracy in the case known as Moore v. Dempsey. Du Bois rallied blacks across America to raise funds for their legal defense, which six years later resulted in a Supreme Court victory authored by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Although the victory had little immediate impact on justice for blacks in the South, it marked the first time the federal government used the 14th Amendment guarantee of due process to prevent states from shielding mob violence. Oh, that's a big so one. So again, we talk about we're going to I bring this up now because yes, there were times where the, you know, Du Bois himself uh and the uh, and as a member of the NAACP was doing positive work for yeah. the community because we all know if we've listened to this podcast for a period of time that uh there's a big uh black mark on their record when it comes to that. Yeah. And we're about to get to that pretty soon. Uh, in 1920, Du Bois published Dark Water, Voices from Within the Veil, the first of his three autobiographies. He needed a couple. The Veil was that which covered, uh, which covered colored people around the world. Okay. In the book, he hoped to lift the veil and show white readers what life was like behind the veil. This is why if there was, if it was, uh, Souls of Black Folk or, or Dark Water, I would rather read Dark Water because it, Du Bois specifically targeted this as white people can understand what is going on. And yeah. I think that may be a more targeted work to read. Um, at least for me personally, I guess I can have it on the show, but just for me, um, the book contained Du Bois, uh, Du Bois's feminist essay, the damnation of women, which was a tribute to the dignity and worth of women, particularly black women concerned that textbooks used by African-American children ignored black history and culture. Du Bois created a monthly children's magazine, the Brownies book initially published in 1920. It was aimed at black children who Du Bois called the children of the sun. This is this is very up and up on the up and up. Yeah. yeah, no, again, he has so there it's so striking because he has so many great things he does, but then 
every once in a while he just makes one wildly misstep. Yeah. But I think it all leads to a fuller picture of who he was and and, and his life. Yeah. Uh, Du Bois traveled to Europe again in 1921 to attend the second Pan-African Congress. The assembled black leaders from around the world issued the London Revolutions and established a Pan-African Association headquarters in Paris. Under Du Bois's guidance, the resolutions insisted on racial equality and that Africa be ruled by Africans. Not as in the 1919 Congress with the consent of Africans. Big difference. Yeah. Du Bois restated the resolutions of Congress in his manifesto to the League of Nations, which implored the newly formed League of Nations to address labor issues and to appoint Africans to key posts. The League took little action on the requests because, of course, they didn't. Yeah. Another another important African-American leader of the 1920s was... Marcus Garvey. Oh, hey, yeah, we we talked about that. This guy, promoter of the Back to Africa the movement, promoter of the the Deuce and Run, uh huh, and founder of the United Negro Improvement Association. <laughs> Garvey denounced Du Bois's efforts to achieve equality through integration and instead endorsed racial separatism. Which yeah, we know. yeah, we we know that. Yeah, we equality, do. equality, bad. Our own little bourgeoisie, good. Du Bois initially supported the concept of Garvey's Black Star Line, a shipping company that was intended to facilitate commerce within the African diaspora. But Du Bois later became concerned that Garvey was threatening the NAACP's efforts, leading Du Bois to describe him as fraudulent and reckless. Hmm. Responding to Garvey's slogan, African Africa for Africans, Du Bois said that he supported that concept, but denounced Garvey's intention that Africa would be ruled by African-Americans. Hmm. Valid. Yeah. Um, du Bo- I, there is one particular section in... The Reconstruction Ban. Oh, my God, dude. Uh, we're not going to get to it tonight, but God, God damn it. It's going to be so good. Uh, du Bois wrote a series of articles in the crisis between 1922 and 1924 attacking Garvey's movement, calling him the most dangerous enemy of the Negro race in America and the world. So Du Bois and Haywood on the same page yeah, when totally. it comes to Garvey. They're hand in hand. They got it. They got this one. Uh, du Bois and Garvey never made a serious attempt to collaborate, and their dispute was partly rooted in their desire for their respective organizations, basically the NWCP versus the UNIA, and to capture a large portion of the available philanthropic funding. So there was this theory that they were both, there was only so much money to go around, and each of them had to kill the other one for it to work, hmm. metaphorically. Harvard's decision to ban blacks from its dormitories in 1921 was decried by Du Bois as an instance of a broad effort in the U.S. to renew the Anglo-Saxon cult, the worship of the Nordic totem, the disenfranchisement of Negro, Jew, Irishman, Italian, Hungarian, Asiatic, and South Sea Islander, the world rule of Nordic white through brute force. I'm going to throw Italians out of that group. They don't get to go. They don't get to come up. They don't get to come up. We have established it is okay. You can't be racist to Italians. We've we've established it. It's been established. I'm sorry. I didn't make the rules. I just enforced them. When Du Bois set sail for Europe in 1923 for the third Pan-African Congress, circulation of the crisis had declined to 60,000 from its World War I high of 100,000. But it remained the preeminent periodical of the civil rights movement. President Coolidge designated Du Bois an envoy extraordinaire to Liberia. And after the third Congress concluded, Du Bois rode a German freighter from the Canary Islands to Africa, visiting Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Senegal. When Du Bois became the editor of the Crisis magazine in 1911, he joined the Socialist Party of America hmm. on the advice of NAACP founders Mary Ovington, William English Walling, and Charles Edward Russell. However, he supported the Democrat Woodrow Wilson in the 1912 presidential campaign, a breach of the rules, and was forced to resign from the Socialist Party. So, God, come on, Du Bois, <laughs> you were so close. <laughs> you had it, and you lost it. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> 
<laughs> two steps forward, one step, step back. back. It is. He is really. Yeah. It's always two. It's not. He's not going in reverse. But it's just like, dude. <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, also, it's so strange because in previously earlier, we had this whole thing where he, he had that confrontation with Wilson about not keeping his promises to the African-American community in particular. So it's just strange. It just is another incongruity that I can't reconcile. I feel at this point that he could be a running television series, Adventures in Becoming a Revolutionary. <laughs> I think just read this episode. I, I mean, it, it, honest to guy, it is very. It's in, and again, we're looking at it's a half the guy's life. Yeah, we're getting close to the end though. Uh, in nineteen, yeah, uh, breach of the rules. He was forced to resign in nineteen thirteen. His support for Wilson was shaken when racial segregation in government hiring was reported. Duh, mm. we've been there. Yeah. Uh, du Bois remained convinced that socialism was an excellent way of life, but I thought it might be reached by various methods. So, okay, we've got the inception. We yeah. have we have some weird left commie. He, he could be grabbed up by Kautsky at this point where we're a little worried. He's, yeah. he's in the mushy. He's in the mushy. He's in the mushy mush. Yeah. yeah. Uh, nine years after the 1917 Russian Revolution, Du Bois extended a trip to Europe to include a visit to the Soviet Union. Cue the international. <laughs> Play that funky music. Du Bois was struck by the poverty and disorganization he encountered in the Soviet Union. Now, this is this is interesting. Yeah, this is 1926. So 1926, this is, which... This is uh, NEP... No, no, they had stabilized back then. I think, um, yeah, I would be curious... This was, was this quite... No, this was right before the first five-year plan. Yes. This was right before collectivization. Yes. Um, and and depending on where he went in the Soviet Union and how, you know, how he was toured, whether you sure. know, this, this could all... This could all channel. But again, this is an interesting... This is a contemporary to when... Uh, Haywood would have been over there for the Lenin School and for uh, yeah. uh, Kuska. So it's interesting to see a different take on it. Now, mm-hmm. that being said, he was impressed by the intense labors of the officials and by the recognition given to workers. So he was very positive of all the leadership and of the people in charge yeah. and and of the, the way they were going about it. Although, okay, so basically, like, like they're poor. He feels they're poor. He feels the conditions are bad. But he's amazed by like how genuine these people are and, and how they run things. In it, and in you a can good imagine. Way. I, I don't. I don't think it would be a str- again poverty yeah. and poverty and disorganization in a country that has just the first country in the history of time to try and over to subvert the capitalist method of production sure. and go through it. disorganization. Uh huh. Yeah, it's only been nine yeah. years. I mean, this is yeah. nothing. This is one presidential, one full presidential run through. Are you kidding? Yeah. Me? No. Well, and we're we're right in between their two major famines too, because they had one in twenty one and they had one in thirty two, thirty three. So there's a lot going on. Yeah. So again, uh, not. But again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat that and say Du Bois said the Soviet Union was perfect. That's just yeah. not no. how it was. But no. he but he had some things. Although Du Bois was not yet familiar with the communist theories of Karl Marx or Vladimir Lenin, he concluded that socialism may be and likely was a better path towards racial equality than capitalism. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So without any of the underlying theory, which, again, I think is very important to getting people to recognize it. And he's yep. one that will obviously grip it quickly because of his, you know, just sure. his natural aptitude for it. Um he he was already recognizing what was going on. Yeah, he he saw it. He he straight up saw it. Yeah. Compare and contrast, and without knowing a thing about what these 
people believed. He's like that. That one seems better. Yeah, that that should be a good thing. He looked. He even looked at it and thought they were poor, and still went. That one seems better. He recognized the the flaws and the the imperfections, and still thought it was a better way forward. Yes. Yeah. And you hear that that speech he gave on socialism at the end. Even it's he he recognizes he recognizes that there is no perfect system, but he also recognizes that one has a far higher yeah. chance of success than the other. <laughs> there is no perfect system, but there's a good one, and I want that. Yeah. Uh, there's at least a, a significantly less murderous one. Yeah. Although Du Bois was generally, in, although Du Bois generally endorsed socialist principles, his politics were strictly pragmatic. In 1929, Du Bois endorsed Democrat Jimmy Walker for mayor of New York rather than the socialist Norman Thomas, believing that Walker could do more immediate good for blacks, even though Thomas's platform was more consistent with Du Bois's views. Again, we are evolving. This is very much <laughs> an Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders kind of argument. And yeah. again, I know that is not perfect. Well, yeah, I mean, this is also, you know, a Bernie Sanders over, you know, voting third party type of argument, too. You know, yeah. 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 No, I guess. Yeah, that would be that would be actually probably the better the yeah. better analogy. Yeah. Um, if there's a third party candidate whose views more closely align the, the right. view than, than Bernie. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, now, again, there's also a much different in terms of harm reduction. There's a I think there's a much more acute, probably pressure on Du Bois yeah. when it comes to his vote. If you if you want to try and yeah. justify the concept of voting for, for harm reduction, if you are oh, sure. and in again, America in the 20s and a, and a black man in America, you're probably going to have a much more pragmatic attitude than than we're allowed to at this point in time. 100%. And also, again, while he did see the other system and make very positive judgments and desire it more in socialism, he's not familiar with any socialist theory at this point either. So, no. I mean, to him, you know, everything's pragmatism. Exactly. Throughout the 20s, Du Bois and the NAACP shifted support back and forth between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, Mm -hmm. induced by promises from the candidates to fight lynchings, improve working conditions, or support voting rights in the South. Invariably, the candidates failed to deliver on their promises. Hey, guys. Invariably. Invariably. It's almost like it doesn't matter. Like like clockwork. A rivalry emerged in 1931 between the NAACP and the Communist Party. Hmm. When the communists responded quickly and effectively to support the Scottsboro Boys, nine African-American youths arrested in 1931 in Alabama for rape, Du Bois and the NAACP felt that the case would not be beneficial to their cause. So, again, this pragmatism. Yeah, we're we're familiar with this very specific episode, too. So familiar. Yeah. Uh, Again, if you haven't listened to the Black Bolshevik episode of Proles, please go do that. Oh, and and, and as we mentioned that episode, please read Black Bolshevik. Yeah. And and there it goes in depth about the whole Scottsboro Boys thing. If you got all the way through this with all the Harry Haywood references we've made and you didn't just stop and go listen to the Black Bolshevik episode, I don't, you, you're a masochist and I don't understand. <laughs> um, they, so they chose to let the Communist Party organize def- the defense efforts. Basically, they thought it wasn't beneficial to their cause, so they thought they'll let the Communists go ahead and take the lead on this one, um, which we all know was a horrible uh, decision because it made yep. them look cowardly in the face of one of the most cr- uh, critical uh, events in, in the country. Yeah. Du Bois was impressed with the vast amount of publicity and funds the communists devoted to the partially successful defense effort and came to suspect that the communists were attempting to present their party to African-Americans as a better solution than the NAACP. And we know from Haywood's explicit writings that they were absolutely trying yeah, to do 100%. that. 100%. Because they thought the NAACP was absolutely a bunch of pragmatic centrists, and they yeah. were. Yeah. Responding to criticism of the NAACP from the Communist Party, Du Bois wrote articles condemning the party, claiming it unfairly attacked the NAACP, and it failed to fully appreciate racism in the United States. 
which we which the, the second part it depends on exactly who's in the if you're talking about yeah. specifically harry haywood shut up if you're talking about like the lovestonian right like he may not be wrong yeah he may not be wrong like, again this is a very interesting this kind of the the him and booker t washington is such a clear right and wrong this clash between du bois specifically and the cat, it's so interesting because on Haywood versus the NAACP, you so clearly take Haywood's side. Sure. But and you now, look at the Communist Party as a whole and you know the chauvinism that Haywood was combating. And you know, du versus du the ACP. Uh, and then you have just Du Bois as an individual yeah. feeling that his organization that he has invested so much in tech. It, it is just interesting to see both sides of this fight yeah. from both, yeah. you know, both very positive reactions. Yeah. Uh, the communist leaders, in turn, accused Du Bois of being a class enemy and claimed that the NWC leadership was isolated, was an isolated elite disconnected from the working class blacks they ostensibly fought for. And that is 100 percent accurate. There is no yeah. arguing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is a very valid criticism. And I think it is the biggest uh, the biggest difference between Du Bois and Haywood for me to this point is that Haywood absolutely was born in the material conditions and lived the material and, and, conditions. And Du Bois was was an elite, yeah. Was absolutely an intellectual elite and yeah. and lived separated from that. Yeah. Uh, du Bois did not have a good working relationship with Walter Francis White, president of the NAACP since 1931. That conflict, combined with the financial stresses of the Great Depression, precipitated a power struggle over the crisis. Okay. The The... Uh, du Bois concerned that his position as editor would be eliminated. He resigned and accepted an academic position back at the University of Atlanta in 1933. The whole, okay. you can't fire me, I've quit. Ha -ha. Yeah. <laughs> After arriving in his new professorship in Atlanta, Du Bois wrote a series of articles generally supportive of Marxism. Hey. Yeah, there we go. He was not a strong proponent of labor unions or the Communist Party. Okay. But he felt that Marx's scientific explanation of society and the economy were useful for explaining the situation of African Americans in the United States. Okay. Marx's atheism also struck a chord with Du Bois, who routinely criticized black churches for dueling black sensitivity to dulling black sensitivity to racism. Yeah. Uh, in his 1933 writings, Du Bois embraced socialism but asserted that colored labor has no common ground with white labor, a controversial position that was dis rooted in Du Bois' dislike of American labor unions, which had systemically excluded blacks for decades. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got some reasons there. Yeah. He has some very good reasons. We saw that in the mine strike during mm -hmm. Black Bolshevik. Absolutely. There were very hard, you know, it was very hard for the Communist Party to organize because they absolutely had done yeah. the their, their black members wrong in their right. exclusion. Um. Du Bois did not support the Communist Party in the U.S. and did not vote for any of their candidates in the 1932 presidential election, in spite of an African American on the ticket. Um, which again, that in wasn't and of that itself, Ford that was on the ticket. Uh, yes, I think it was yeah. Ford. Yeah, I think it was Ford. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't just being a black. I mean, that we 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 don't sure. we know identity politics. That level doesn't exist. Um, and right, right. I mean, that's that's some concept we've had to go over, you know, back and forth so many times here because it gets. Uh, <sighs> Obfuscated. I don't know how to say that. Obfuscated. Obfuscated, you know, in so many ways. But, like, identity politics are good and they are important. But abuse of identity politics is very, very bad and easy. And uh, so we call that, you know, tokenism or tokenization. And that is 
definitely a thing. Like Barack Obama is tokenization. Yes, you know? yes, 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 yes. Versus like Stalin as a Georgian in the Soviet Union was, you know, I good identity politics. When when Fanon talks about, you know, I mean, the the dregs of the nation needing to, to come up and, and take over, you know, that's good identity politics. You need someone who is native and and poor to, to show those people, you know, who is the leader. So obviously there's there's good identity politics and there's abuse of it, you know. A hundred percent. Um so again, this is nineteen thirty two. Mm-hmm. So we're he didn't support the Communist Party in the U.S. He's having. We're at the. If we want to situate this in the timeline, mm-hmm. we're 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 cla- it's it, the Scottsboro Boys are going on. We're having these clashes between the mm-hmm. Communist Party and him. But he is receptive. He's left the NAACP, uh-huh. uh, or he's left Crisis at least. So he has less of an active role in having to defend the organization yep. internally. Um, he is coming over more to the idea of Marxism, but hasn't yet joined the party. But understands Marx's ideas. Mm-hmm. And it is at this time that Du Bois sets out to write his magnum opus, Black Reconstruction in America. And that is where we're going to stop this particular biography of of W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, This will be to be continued. We're going to do a whole... We, the, the second half of this biography will absolutely happen, uh, before we finish Black Reconstruction. Yes. <laughs> because that, we're going to do that interview in about three months. And if my time guessing is anything, we are going to be at least eight months to nine months deep in Black Reconstruction. Um, but again, the, the second half of this autobiography or this biography will be coming out in, uh, in March on mm-hmm. the Pearls of the Roundtable. We'll be sure to plug that when yep. it's coming up when we're recording those episodes. Yeah, we'll record it in March. It'll probably be late March when they come out with that worst April, but they usually, yeah, the, no, they're usually, they usually have a pretty quick turnaround yeah. on that editing. Uh, and Justin, Justin knows how to edit my nonsense now. Uh, yeah. he's, he's dealt with us once already, so this should be a, this should be a kick. <laughs> he's walk. warmed up. Also, this time should be far more focused and not three and a half hours long. Ugh. So, uh, yeah, we should be a little bit uh should be a little bit better for everybody we're not subject to, to my disorganized note taking this time either no so. yeah this time this is gonna be fun i told david i was like hey so we're gonna do pearls again he's like oh cool what are we gonna do i said uh you're not gonna have to do shit you're just gonna have to sit back and fucking listen to an episode <laughs> where i'm just gonna talk the whole time and just hang out and throw pot shots at me he's like that sounds good i'm like well forget yeah, sounds good i don't have to do anything Jackass! <laughs> I, I cannot give David shit. The, he did a, a marvelous, and if you have, I don't know how you would know, but if you have not listened to his episode that he just did on the uh, the color wars and the color revolution, that well, that was a extremely well researched and sourced piece, and it was very very well done. But this has been the end of our episode. I do believe we're going to, this will probably be a bit of a longer one, but I do think we're going to release this as just one episode. Um, this is yeah. only about an hour and 25 minutes. It's a little bit, you're going to get a little bit longer than you're used to, but That's I don't a, I don't want to cut yeah. this out. I don't want to cut this up. I think this will be yeah. a good, just a longer episode yep. um, to make up for the fact that we didn't give you a bonus episode this week because we've been spoiling you with those and gosh darn it, you're going to eat your carrots now. <laughs> this is your carrots. Enjoy them. Um... That being said, uh, this is this is Mark's Madness. If you want to uh, if you want to talk to us, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, uh, you should go to the best way to talk to us ever is to go to iTunes, click that little five star review button, and then and then write a review in five there and say stars. hi. Five stars, not four. Five. What are you four stars doing? I don't understand you. Um, I, your mentality confuses me, but I love you all the same. You're all welcome. All are welcome here. Uh, that's not true. Fascists get the fuck out. Um. 
But yeah, five. That's that's the because it's the computers and the algorithms and all that shit. That's the easiest way for us to get to more people. And yes. the more people we get to, we're finding more and more people that have access to organizations, um, and that are doing organizing work. We had a couple Twitter shoutouts recently from people in uh, Puerto Rico yeah. that are using this as an organizing tool and that kind of shit. Again, I've said it before. I'll say it again. That is like most heartwarming shit in the history of time, and I love you for it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, if you wanted to uh, uh, find us in a social media space, the only one we use is Twitter. Um, and it's at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Uh, if you wanted to send us a longer form thing, you can send it to Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com mm-hmm. or you can just d- DM us a really long one. We get those all the time, those are cool too. Um, and if you want to have like a conversation and chill out in a cool, you know, forum with a bunch of other people that's not the Oslo Freedom Forum, you should go to Dumb and Awful's <laughs> Discord. Uh, because we are absolutely forming it up there with some cool shit. We have, uh, Jack, com- our comrade Jack Burton from, uh, you know, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. He's a good person. He's awesome. Uh, he does a movie night where we just basically stream movies for, he just streams a movie in there and everyone chills out and watches movies and shit talks and, you know, since shit. We play Final Fantasy. It's a good time. It's great. It's great times. So we talk about K-pop a lot. Uh, it's a, it's a good group of people. Come on, come on in and uh, and check them out. Um, that being said, I think those are all the the pending things we had on the agenda. David, yeah. do you have anything? No, I I think we're good. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, this has been Mark's Madness. I am Nathan. I'm David. Bye. Bye. Bye.